The decoding session for the pre-title sequence to Tomorrow Never Dies is ready to hit the presses, and Raymond Benson's novelization of the movie sheds light on it. David Arnold, as series composer, adds a new dimension, chess pieces and power. Judy Dench delivers. And what is their relationship to Jeffrey Palmer? And yeah, boom, bang, explosions, plane crashes, encoders, and more. Let's get to it. Today, Mike Reyes from CinemaBlend.com joins Tom and me in decoding the Pierce Brosnan James Bond pre-title, Tomorrow Never Dies. Welcome back, Mike. Oh, Dan, Tom, it's so good to be back. Yeah, it's been too long. We're very happy to have you. <laughs> when was the last time? Was the last time Spectre decoded? Or was I there another so. episode after that? I think we did one more after that. But man, it's been too long. <laughs> yeah. All right, let's get some trivial facts done right now. Yes, it was going to be called Tomorrow Never Lies, which makes sense since Elliot Carver was writing tomorrow's headlines in advance. But they say a typo made it Tomorrow Never Dies, and MGM really liked that title. So, now, the L and the D on the keyboard really are not near each other, so I don't know how that happened, but what the hell. <laughs> Dan, Dan, I've seen your typing. <laughs> I can see you making that mistake. <laughs> yeah, well, not to the point where it changed the title of a movie. <laughs> anyway. <laughs> All right, also, Jonathan Price was terrific as Carver, but Sir Anthony Hopkins was first cast as Carver, but walked out after a few days because the whole thing was chaotic with the script unfinished and all that. So, bam, he, he left. Well, it's he, amazing how many of these movies the scripts aren't done when they start shooting. Yeah. I was going to say, a James Bond movie with an unfinished script? <laughs> no time to write. Yeah, really. <laughs> no time to write. So, like so Mike, when, with all the other movie stuff that you do, is, is this fairly common practice that movies start filming before they're ready? I don't think it's a fairly common practice, but when it's a, a tight scenario, nightmare stories like this crop up all over the place. Jurassic Park 3 apparently dunked its script like months or weeks before it was about to film. Wow. Uh, Iron Man. Wow. Uh, Jeff yeah. Bridges has famously gone on record saying that was like an improv sort of student film adventure. <laughs> but, it, you know, they pulled it together in the end. Yeah. And you look at the history of Tomorrow Never Dies, there's a lot of interesting things about how this story started out as, you know, a Donald Westlake manuscript. Yeah, yeah. About the the handover from, mm-hmm. or no, the England handover to, to Hong Kong. Yeah, yeah, but yeah. Okay, yeah. It eventually turned into this. Yeah. Hmm. All right. So I think here is the only Bond villain to have been married, Paris Carver, of course. And I, I think it's the only on-screen love affair, too, I think, that Bond has with a married woman. Isn't it? I think so. In the, well, in the classic continuity. Because in the reboot, Bond does uh, have a, relation, a minor relationship, I guess you call it, with uh, Solange Dimitrios before he goes after Dimitrios in Miami. Yeah, yeah, but... You don't see the on-screen stuff like Paris Carver. You saw them. You saw her getting undressed and everything else. Fair, it, right? For for Solange, she kind of leaves. Right? He gets up and leaves. He's going after Demetrius. He's like, "You have the caviar yeah. or whatever. I'm going." It's like so we don't see it. But anyway, okay, all right. Yeah, now Dan, one, one of the th- one of the things that I kind of like. Now this is later in the movie. It's not in the in the pre-title. But the, since we're talking about Paris Carver, she's not in the pre-title either. But in this, there's that scene where Carver questions Paris's past with Bond, and yeah. he tells the story of him learning the key to a great story. Well, in that scene, Carver originally tells Paris 
maybe you should get to know him better, is what he tells her, mm-hmm. implying that he wanted her to seduce Bond. But in the final movie, he, she says, I, when she says, I told you I barely know him, he just reper- repeats the word barely. So, we're, I mean, not a big change in the text, but a definitely different tone mm-hmm. between what we saw in the movie versus what was originally written. Especially with the end result for Paris to begin with. That kind of makes yeah. it even crueler. Yes. Yeah, yeah, Absolutely. yeah. Right. Exactly. Yeah. All, right. All right. So, Dan, get, why don't we get back to the pre-title? But uh, since we're talking about Carver, I wanna, uh, that's one of my favorite things about the, the Carvers in this movie. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This is basically David Arnold inaugurating his tenure as the Bond composer, uh, where he basically started with Tomorrow Never Dies and ended with Quantum of Solace. And at least throughout the Brosnan openings, the man never repeats himself. Because we start out with a more traditional huh. like rendition of the Bond theme through the gun barrel. And especially after Eric Serra's sort of ni- mid-90s Euro techno score, it was kind of a, a relief to hear that. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, he throws in a little electronics with The World Is Not Enough. And he throws in even more electronics and a flying bullet coming to your face with Die Another Day. All right. We have a situation here where we have an MI6 agent on the ground somewhere, right, with a camera broadcasting what is happening. and Very inconspicuously. Yeah. It's, and it's Bond at a terrorist arms bazaar on the Russian border. So that could be anywhere. I mean, the Russian border is pretty, big. pretty damn big. right? And, but it's cold and snowy. So, okay. This opening teaser sees Bond single-handedly blitzing a terrorist arms bazaar on the Russian border. Now, this remote location is one of the world's, really, in real life, one of the world's few high-altitude airfields. So, it is real, and it's a real place, and I'll try to pronounce this. (laughs) It's the Altaport de Parasud Balistas at Parasud in the central French Pyrenees. The last part was easy to say. Dan, uh, so thank, a, thank you for trying that for me because there's no <laughs> way in heck I'd even do those. <laughs> it's a real place, so, and it's cool. And it did really establish that kind of feel of the Russian front there. So I thought they did a good job on scouting that location. That was good. You know, one, one little thing I love about this, with that big long name you gave it, <laughs> um, much like in Thailand, we have what is now more commonly known as the James Bond Island, right, in, in The Man with the Golden Gun, it's really the common name for the Kaofing Khan Islands. Now, the airstrip here has actually been renamed to Altaport 007. Yay! So it's not that long <laughs> name you tried. Now, I couldn't find any other spy movies that filmed here. I, I looked, looked that up. But this airstrip has been used as a staging area in many of the Tour de France races. Yeah, so, it's pretty cool. That's a so, cool. It's a cool location. Yeah. And it works. We buy in. It's nice. But because when they were filming, the real snow was already melting, they had to bring in extra snow for these scenes. So, so, But I think it was real snow that they were bringing in. If you want to see real great fake snow, It's a Wonderful Life is the terrific movie that, that won an award <laughs> for its fake snow. It's spectacular. So, that's wow. Yeah. Dan, we're spy movie navigator. Yeah, <laughs> it's a wonderful life is not about a spy. I know, How but it's know got that great George snow. Bailey wasn't infiltrating the Reds. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. 
All right, so back to Bond. A camera is spying on this base, and the camera looks pretty obvious, like Tom said. If anyone on this base would look around, uh, they'd see it. <laughs> and, and anyway, this camera... You gotta love that chunky 90s tech where it's like, this is cutting edge. It's also 50 pounds. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Hey, you know, cutting edge changes, right? So. Yeah. Anyway, this camera is transmitting to the MOD. You can see that in the lower right-hand part of the screen. So it's broadcasting these images to the Ministry of Defense. So there are plenty of supplies ready to be sold in this arms bazaar, from helicopters to Chinese scuds, a pair of Russian mortars, and crates of rifles, they say, that look American, Chilean mines, German explosives, and as one guy says in there, hey, fun for the whole family. (laughs) I mean, if they don't have it at the terrorist arms bazaar, you can't find it. (laughs) It's not worth having. A little bit of that. (laughs) We see that MI6 and the military is monitoring and and IDing the terrorists. Uh, Henry Gupta, he's a techno-terrorist from the United States, and so on. There's a Sotashi... Getaguri, I think he says. Getagura? A so chemical. Ishigura. Yeah. Ishigura? Yeah. Ishigura? A chemical Ishigura. expert wanted for the Tokyo subway attack and more, right? So. Well, yeah. Um, I'll jump in because one of the really cool parts about this sequence, at least in my you know, view, is we're introduced to a character by the name of Charles Robinson, who is the deputy chief of staff to M, okay. who falls under. Uh, Bill Tanner. Yeah. Now, Michael Kitchen, who played Bill Tanner in the Brazen era, wasn't available for filming, so they introduced this new character played by Colin Salmon, who would go on to reprise the role throughout the rest of the run. He was also supposedly auditioning to replace Pierce Brosnan at Casino Royale and even got Brosnan's blessing, but unfortunately did not find out until Daniel Craig was cast that he didn't get the gig. Oh, wow. Uh, that's wow. Last second. He was one of those people that was hotly tipped by the tabloids, like Wow. Doing the doing some research for this 2004, I think the Sun was like, "Yeah, we're calling it for uh, we're calling it for Colin Salmon." Like he was that hotly tipped. He's kind of like the Henry Cavill of his day. Wow! Yeah. Wow! No kidding. Wow! That's good. All right. So anyway, here back at the Arms Bazaar, here they zoom in on an American encoder used by the U.S. to control their navigation satellites and GPS systems, and M gives a nice little dig to the U.S. <laughs> saying, I wonder if the CIA will be more upset that they lost it or that we found it. <laughs> <laughs> always, about, eh, always cutting. Yeah, it's like, woo, boom, right in there. Now, this encoder in the pre-title sequence plays a major role in the movie. So here, the pre-title is connected to the rest of this mission. That's a big piece right there, right? Uh, yeah, oh yeah, especially because that encoder is falling into the hands of Henry Gupta, who we mentioned before, yeah. who is a re- real, revealed to be Elliot Carver's right-hand man, ready to rock and ruin, and played <laughs> by famed magician and David Mamet collaborator Ricky Jay, yeah. which just, this was my introduction to him. And I, 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 you know, I recognize him as stuff like Boogie Nights and then like all the other Mamet films like State and Maine or Heist, like, and just really loved his performance in this movie and yeah. i mean anybody with jonathan price works but especially ricky jay is one of the the mvps here yeah oh yeah a- absolutely and i don't know if you've seen it but on one of the dvd sets one of the extras on it they showed a deleted scene 
where Ricky Jay was doing his card stuff because he's one of his trademarks was he was an expert yeah. card thrower. Yeah. And so it, this scene shows him, you know, flipping these cards and hitting stuff as as part of it. But it ended up on the cutting room floor. But oh. if you if you are a Ricky Jay fan, you know you you can try to find that clip because it's pretty cool. It's a deleted scene from the movie, but it's him just doing doing what he does best, better than anybody in the world. Yeah. So you got all this chaos going on here in this scene, and right after this happens, right after the the scene we're talking about. M gets put down by the Admiral, who tells her that they've seen enough. This is now a military operation. So, a little turmoil here, and a little power battle going on between the military and MI6. <laughs> uh, and dare so I good power struggle. Oh, and dare I say, it, it could be technically considered as a lover's quarrel, because the late, great Jeffrey Palmer, who plays Admiral Roebuck so brilliantly oh. and just the short the, the short span that we have him in this movie yes just fantastic authority and butting heads with M is kind of used to that because he was also Dame Judi Dench's love interest on the famed Britcom as time goes by <laughs> <laughs> so it's yeah it's a lover's quarrel <laughs> it's a lover's quarrel hey that's good I like that <laughs> nothing like a work wife scenario alright so there's a little power struggle that's going on here between MI6 and the military so I'll look into this a little bit. MI6 does not report up to the military, even though during the two world wars, MI stood for military intelligence. And there were many sections like, I think one through 18 or something like that. And MI6 and MI5 as sections continued on. And they kept their colloquial title, even though MI6 today is really the secret intelligence service, whose motto happens to be Sempre Occultus always secret except of course bond's name everyone knows that uh, <laughs> but and they, and they know that he wants us shaken not stirred <laughs> yeah and the mi6 personnel are really civilians and they report to the foreign secretary not to the military so in this particular scenario here you got the military embattling here with mi6 but in real life they don't report up through the same ranks so there you go and I, I was wondering here in this scene, Mike, Tom, what, what's, what's a Russian doing there watching this, monitoring with the British military and MI6? What, I, I Seems didn't a little weird. That. Huh? Seems a little weird. I mean, it definitely does seem a little weird, but the thing is, looking at that question, franchise-wise, what I thought was, this is obviously the uh, Bruce Firestein, the writer, and maybe even Barbara Broccoli and Michael G. Wilson, the producers of Bond, mm -hmm. all forwarding the franchise's tradition of sort of looking forward in terms of politics. And it's like, okay, Cold War's ended. We're starting to to become more cooperative with the Russians and vice versa. <laughs> yeah, you so might be right on that, maybe, yeah. Yeah, maybe they were being uber-modern about it. Yeah. However, Raymond Benson's novelization not only gives this character a name, Major General Bukharin, uh, it also na names him as a Russian liaison to MI6, and upon M's insistence, he's allowed in the control room to watch this, what I'm assuming is, well, not a joint operation, because it looks like it's, uh, well, we'll get into that later, but yeah, I think yeah, it's, yeah. Uh, he's allowed to observe because they're getting some sort of assistance from MI6. Yeah, okay, so that's good. So Raymond <laughs> clears up our mystery in the novelization of, of the movie. I'm sure it's in another draft somewhere, yeah. because, yeah. I mean, okay. you, you look at any, I think if you bought the VHS, it came with a copy of the shooting script. 
And I would be I would huh? be curious if that's actually in there. Okay. Yeah, that'd be a good thing to find out. All right. So here they they opt for a naval strike, and that means one strike is going to take out half the world terrorists. They're talking. About. So it's like okay. And Admiral Roebuck here tells them, "Let's not waste time." And now I, I like this part too because it's kind of cool that he, Admiral Roebuck, is Black King, talking to White Bishop, giving authorization to fire, telling M, "Get your man out of there. His job is over." So White Knight, who's Bond, is talking to White Rook, who's the MI6 headquarters. I like this chess piece thing because it's pretty cool, and they they play it out you know, consistently through this whole scene. And the rank of the chess pieces, too, is actually tied in with the ranks here that we see on the screen, which is kind of cool. So it's obviously chess is a very strategic game where luck really has a minimal role. And here, all the talk is white ring, white white knight, white rook, and, and so on. And the chess pieces, like I said, have a value. Like a pawn is one, a knight is valued at three, a bishop is three, a rook is five, a queen is nine in, in terms of value in a chess game. So here we have a white knight bond, value three, talking to white rook, value five, meaning that the white rook is pulled rank here and in control. And it was always a battle with, in the old days, with chess matches, Boris Spatsky as the grand master in the old days versus the world. He kept winning over and over again. He held the world championship from 1969 to 1972, and Spassky lost in the 1970 in 1972 to the American grandmaster, this young guy Bobby Fischer, as we all remember. <laughs> and so here we see a possible, maybe a callback to that, but certainly we're, <laughs> we we see this now. And hey, since we're on the Russian border. Well, why not pull this chest stuff in? I thought it was kind of cool. Dan, you tell me that sometimes I go off on a tangent. <laughs> <laughs> hey, say what you will about Boris Spassky. He ain't no Kronstein. <laughs> Just saying. <Right. laughs> That's true. Well, and when were we recording this, there's a whole thing in the chess world about did this one guy cheat? In this, in the, uh, yeah. in a match just recently, so. so there's some very interesting means too. Uh, yes. Google that, ladies and gentlemen. Yes. We won't, we won't spoil the fun for you. A little elementary for you. Yeah. All right. Here was. <laughs> so here they're telling in the end. Okay. All right. Here they're telling the White Knight to get out. You got four minutes to impact because they're launching a missile. Remember the they're going to do a naval strike. But apparently, White Knight is telling them he will wait. <laughs> He's seen something that they have not seen. And then we see it on the camera that the plane has Soviet SP-5 nuclear torpedoes. Now, they want to abort the missile because nuclear torpedoes, oh my God, uh, we can't blow those things up. And as the order goes down to abort the missile on the ship, a crew member presses the destroy button. (laughs) (laughs) But transmission error lights up it's too late to abort the missile is out of range and impossible to destroy they do not want this nuclear explosion with the with the russian nuclear torpedoes so now what oh yeah now this is kind of you know we see this in movies sometimes in fact we saw it in no time to die where missiles get launched and they can't stop it right so you know the thing for me is how many times in the real world does this happen? And we never hear about it. 
Right? Yeah. We don't we don't have a carver to tell us that news, right? <laughs> it's this stuff happens in the background, we don't hear about it or we get a different story from the media. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, maybe I'm just looking at things a little cynically here, but this kind of this is kind of scary and you wonder how much of it does really happen where well, and, and it made me wonder, happens. too, that can you really not destroy a missile after it's been launched? And so I, I'm not sure about that. I did some research, uh, a la Tom, <laughs> and I couldn't find anything exactly pertinent to this. But the, certainly on nuclear stuff, uh, there's there's no, they say, there's no way to recall a nuclear missile once it's launched. Well, no, but it wasn't a mi- nuclear missile. No, no, I'm just forward. saying. I, I say right. we haven't found anything yeah. specifically for this ballistic missile, but ballistic right. missiles could be nuclear or they could be, you know, normal bombs. So there wasn't an exact reference that we could find for this ballistic missile, and it's probably they left it vague like that so that we couldn't find it. <laughs> well, just like I don't think the SP-5 actually exists. Right. Yeah, I, I don't think the SP-5. There are, there are. they say there's no such thing as nuclear torpedoes. So, yes, the SP-5, you're right, Mike. I don't think it would have existed in this scenario. But for the purposes of the pre-title sequence, it's pretty cool. Because now we have a reason, right? This is kind of a MacGuffin. Because, like, we don't want to blow up the nuclear torpedoes. And that's now the big thing. So, it anyway. will make Chernobyl look like a picnic. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I love it. And he kind of hesitates when he, he delivers that line, Mike, too. It, the, the Russian is like, like he didn't know what exactly what he was going to say. Will it trigger the torpedoes? It might. But even if it does not, there's enough plutonium t- to make Chernobyl look like a picnic. Bloody hell. Like, I thought that was like, <laughs> uh, okay. <laughs> All right. So anyway, this panic not to be able to abort the missile is probably realistic in some sense. One, you cannot abort the missile once it's launched, or two, once it's launched and out of a certain range, perhaps you cannot abort the missile. So, okay, we're going to run with this and say we'll believe that. So, (laughs) (laughs) No, those things fly pretty fast. It's probably out of radio range at that point Yeah, in in a hypothetical sense. There you go. That's that's true. Yeah. I have to say, now, the shots of this missile cruising to its target, where it's it's close to the ground to stay out of radar range, Mm -hmm. and it it adjusts its course as it's going. I mean, that looked really, really cool. Yeah. I mean, you know, it it was obviously done on a computer, but it doesn't look like it. So they did a really good job with this one. Yeah, I thought so, too. I thought it looked realistic and i like that we were following the trajectory of the missile swooping low and so on they did yeah i think they did i agree they did a good job and then and then everything's just amped up even more again by david arnold's score which white knight is still one of my favorite cues of his his bond work and there's just this constant tension that's at first it's sort of slow and creeping in the beginning but especially during those missile shots yeah you've got that wonderful horn section that loves to wail on the uh, the melody yeah. that is sort of the theme that sort of played through the movie where it's like like just wailing horns. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. That was good. And it really adds to the tension and the drama of what's going on. So that, that's perfect when music does that, right? And it enhances the scene as opposed to standing out where you're thinking, oh, what the hell is that? So yeah, that's great stuff. So now M is going crazy. She's yelling, call NATO, call the Pentagon, call everybody. You know, <laughs> this is bad. You know? 
and then uh, evacuate your troops and get them the hell out of there. But whose troops are there? This is another thing I'm wondering, Mike. Whose troops are there? Those are Russian troops because, it, uh, again, I'm going to hit back towards Raymond Benson's novelization, which okay. I found in my internet research. But yeah. even before that, you hear Admiral Roebuck talking to Major General Bakar, and he's like, you saw the Gatling gun. Are your troops prepared for that kind of firepower? Yeah. Now, so those are supposed to be Russian troops. However, those Russian troops did not arrive at the bazaar as planned because they were fogged out. Okay. And that's mentioned in the novelization. Okay. However, because of nuclear fallout, you know, even if you're 50 miles away or even if, if you're like yeah. uh, what you think is a safe distance, you're probably not. Yeah, right, right, yeah. What adds even more pressure to this is something that was not mentioned in the movie. I don't know if it's in a, a previous draft or deleted scene, but in the novelization, there's a village that's threatened by that potential Chernobyl picnic that's about to go off. Okay. Yeah. All right. That's good stuff because I'm wondering, get your troops out of there. What are the Russian troops doing there at a bazaar that all these missiles and stuff are being sold at? So that's yeah. <laughs> like yeah. I think it was a Russian op, and then they have okay. like joint. Well, they have cooperation from MI6 through the military. Yeah, so it's yeah. basically like a joint strike. They they're the ones that are really putting skin in the game here, and that we've got one they've got one intelligence operative from England over there, okay. who we still have not seen in this almost ten minute uh, opening <laughs> credits. And keep in mind, Mister Bond doesn't appear until maybe the four and a half, the four, yeah, almost yeah, the five yeah. minute mark. It's quite a quite a while, yeah. All right, yeah. Well, I mean, and this and this is not a slow reveal of a new Bond actor either. No, usually, that's what usually that's they what do that. Was on. Yeah, that, usually they do that when it, they're revealing the new Bond. And yeah. The, you know what? I, I kind of liked it, though, because it, the whole scenario, you, you are sucked into the scenario, even though we haven't seen Bond yet. So I think they did a good job with that. Bond, we haven't seen, but, man, we're kind of drawn into the scenario, wondering what the hell's going on and everything else. So man, that was that was pretty well done. All right. Yeah, so yeah. we do have this problem, like you said, Mike, <laughs> that... We got this nuclear device, uh, the torpedoes that are going to blow up. So that's the problem. That, hey, even if they don't blow up the missiles, there's enough plutonium there, like you said. Hey, Chernobyl's going to look like a picnic. All right. And then I, I love uh, Robux says, to him, hey, uh, can't you people lock up anything? Keep anything locked up? It's like, <laughs> it's like, yeah, well, you know, the United States actually lost nuclear missiles a couple of times <laughs> in real life. <laughs> we're not saying I mean, where we know they where are. All of them are. We know. <laughs> we're not saying. Yeah, we're not saying where they are. Uh, all right. Yeah, that's. I mean, lost weapons that could possibly endanger the rest of the world. That's never anything that comes back to to bite the Bond series in the ass. No, not at all. <laughs> no, no, no. That's no time to new. keep things straight. Uh, Absolutely. All right, we viewers are now worried about Bond. They are desperately trying to get a hold of him. White Knight, White Knight, come in. And we know the missile is close to striking. Oh, no! Bond might die in a pre-title sequence. But, Dan, this is no time for Bond to die. Yeah, no, right. We got that later. <laughs> you got all the time in the world. Yeah, yeah, exactly. yeah, all the time of the world. All right, they get well, no answer. another few years. <laughs> they get no answer from White Knight. Now, again, like you said, Mike, we haven't even seen him yet, right? We're four and a half minutes, four minutes, over four minutes into this thing. And then we see a hand lighting a cigarette for another guy. 
And then the hand withdraws. The guy looks up at who lit his cigarette, and Bond punches out the guy and then quips. Filthy habit. <laughs> because the new Bond era, you know, they, he doesn't smoke the new Bond. So, okay, there's Eon's public service message. <laughs> yeah, now, there, kind of something interesting here is that the in IMDb, there's a question com, There's a question where they comment on this scene. Uh-huh. And so, somebody responded saying they thought it was a marijuana cigarette. Oh. And now, I've, I've watched this many times. I definitely mm. didn't pick up on that. Yes, it's a hand-rolled cigarette, but, I mean, you know. I think that's what's throwing people off because hand-rolled cigarettes tend to have that sort of, you know, yeah. obviously a blunt has that look because it's rolled by a person, not a machine. Right. Yeah. But if, really- I, if I remember, you used to twist the end of the- <laughs> Well, yeah, you're right yeah, about that. Right, Tom? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> also, you take a look at the tobacco in there. That's brown. So that's yeah. like, okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I did well, plus, think. Plus, why would you, I mean, the, the pungent <laughs> smell of pot, if you're trying to just, I mean, Everybody why would you even smell? smell why would you even smoke pot at a terrorist arms bazaar anyway? Yeah, I don't right. want to. I don't want anybody stoned getting their hands on SP five <laughs> nuclear torpedoes or Chilean mines yeah. or or German helicopters. Like no, <laughs> shop sober. After that, yeah, it's up to you. Yeah, yeah, you might pay too much too. <laughs> yeah. Uh, now the action starts. Yeah, Bond tosses a bomb, and we see the first explosion. Yeah, it causes a pretty big distraction, which was his idea, right? So, yeah, uh, and also you've got Gatling guns going off all over. Like it, the whole thing devolves into chaos. Well, Mike, you said the Gatling guns. That's true, and I, I, I'm seeing this too, and I'm thinking, who are who's firing the Gatling gun, and who are they shooting at? I mean, they were all I, together there buying shit. I mean, buying stuff. <laughs> now the Gatling gun's going off. Who are they firing at? It doesn't seem uh, like they're firing just at Bond, right? They're, I don't know. It does. It seems chaotic, but I think that you're talking about those giant, like, truck-mounted Gatling guns. Yeah. I think it's firing on the plane because even if they don't know who Bond is, they just see this guy setting off an explosion, running around, causing chaos, and then jumps into this plane. And, and there's also that wonderful shot of Pierce Brosnan, like, on top of the plane, just shooting off his, yeah, his yeah. Uh, yeah. machine gun and like trailer ready shot right there yeah and then obviously they see this guy causing panic it's like look I'm, I'm just trying to buy my girlfriend a chilean mine for christmas <laughs> and you come in here and decide to just take that plane which i may have also bought for her just don't know i'm still shopping we're at a terrorist arms bazaar this isn't a, a shooting range but it becomes one, especially when Bond jumps into the plane and just starts shooting his gun and firing yeah. torpedoes that are non-nuclear. Yeah, all right. So you think the, all the Gatling guns are aimed at Bond? You, you, yeah. I didn't think that. I thought they were kind of shooting all over the place. But all right. <laughs> yeah. Now, one thing I want to add here too about this: how Bond sets this whole thing going, because the action starts when he throws the lighter, which is a yeah. bomb. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right? Right. And beautiful Q branch gadget. Yeah, typical Q branch gadget, but. I thought when I first saw that, I thought it was the same gold lighter that they have in the Kingsman series because they've got the gold lighter bomb things too. But I did some research into that and the Kingsman lighter is a a Dunhill Rolagas and the closest lighter that Bond (laughs) used in the the movie was a Dunhill Broadboy that he used in Dr. No. 
The Kingsman lighter also has a similar appearance to the, to the Calibri Melectric 88 gas lighter that was used as the gun assembly in The Man with the Golden Gun. So I thought that was pretty cool. And then my other thought that I had on here when this whole thing starts is that we should be recognizing Vic Armstrong's work here. Mm-hmm. He was a stuntman in You Only Live Twice, On Her Majesty's Secret Service, Live and Let Die, yeah. and many other movies. And then he moved to stunt coordinator roles. And here in Tomorrow Never Dies, he gets his first spin as the second unit director in a Bond series. Mm-hmm. And he just does such a great job with the stunts. And there's some pretty cool stunts in this sequence. Oh, yeah, there's some great stunts in the sequence. I, that's what I'm saying. I think it's a pre-title sequence. It really is a good one because the action is not... You don't think there's too much action or it's like superfluous action. All the stuff that's happening seems to fit in. Except the Gatling gun thing, which I was uh, confused about. <laughs> <laughs> and it does get kind of confusing where everything is just very... You can get caught up in this. Like, yeah. it is brisk editing it's not you know it's not shaky cam but it is still very brisk editing and then you add in all the other elements where it's just it is total chaos yeah yeah it it is chaos and they they do create that sense and again we don't know exactly what's going to happen and we hear someone say i've got the encoder again small part of the pre-title sequence but a big part of the rest of the movie so that's kind of cool Oh, yeah, I mean, that's again, that's just hammering Henry Gupta's importance home because of not only the actual encoder itself, but his presence linked directly to Elliot Carver. Yes. And I, as, you know, any Bond fan will tell you, the pre, the opening sequences can be, you know, consequentially tied to things. Like, you look at Goldeneye and it's a flashback to 006's uh, origin story, so to speak. But it doesn't really, it's not really tied into his well it's kind of tied into his plot but this is more so something that kicks everything off and then you see it again in world is not enough Mm -hmm. where that whole opening sequence which at one point was the longest one ever uh actually is very important to the overall scheme yeah so here we got people scrambling all over the place here picking up armaments (laughs) and bond elements here (laughs) yeah bond plants another explosive and a moment later, after the Admiral dresses down M by saying, What the hell is he doing? Because they're watching this, remember? The camera's still going. M answers sternly, His job. I love that. She's, I love her as M. She was good. Still, still a top-tier M comeback. Still a top-tier line and bond in general. And yeah. just, Dame Judi Dench, I, I will sidetrack us a little bit because not only was that a gorgeous trailer-ready line that also actually is in the trailer, yeah. and that's one of the things that still hits for me every time, mm-hmm. but they just gave her such wonderful dialogue to deliver yeah. throughout her tenure as M. She was my first M, and like e- even moving on to Ray Fiennes, who was terrific, and even moving backwards and catching up on Bernard Lee and you know the unofficial... Uh, substitutes that came or the unofficial successors that came in once he had passed she was my first and it it's kind of hard to move on from that like i mentioned skyfall the other night and my wife was like or no i didn't mention it i think i was watching the sound of 007 uh-huh. on prime oh, yeah, 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 and yeah. then skyfall and judy dench came up and my, my wife was like oh yeah like it's still yeah it's still a i know nerve. i know uh yeah i love that moment and but judy dench here <laughs> his job and we know 
Well, and, and I actually think she does the best of all the M's of this. Whenever there's the conflict between MI6 and some other agency, there's comments made by M, but I think she does the best of that in the whole series. She defends she, MI6 the yeah. best with her yeah. lines. And here it's perfect, right? Because we know after all these films, and all the novels that Bond will always attempt to do his job. So M is 100% correct on this call and delivers it impeccably. I mean, just perfect, right? All right. Yeah, and she gets the most of that brunt throughout the, the franchise, too. She's the one that has to fight the hardest for them. Yeah, yeah, right. And she always is. And I, I love that they're all watching this. Really, it was like when President Obama in the U.S. was watching the Navy SEAL team go in to get Osama bin Laden. And in here, they realize Bond is going for the bombs, the nuclear torpedoes. But now they're now they're they're going to be worried, right? Remember, Bond has to escape because the inbound missile's coming. Let's not forget that <laughs> it's on its oh, way yeah. and it's close to hitting. Check and out missile. We have to wonder: Will Bond escape or will he die? I mean, it's not impossible for them to have Bond die in a movie, especially from an explosion. Missiles. And especially and especially if they want to pre credit fake out. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so how many significant explosions are there in the pre title? I mean, there's a lot, right? There's I, I counted that maybe there's like thirteen pretty major explosions here in the pre oh, wow. in the pre title. Maybe there's more, I don't know. But it seems like we're about to rank them all. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> Sit back, everybody. Number one. <laughs> You thought this was going to be a short one. <laughs> so, yeah, Bond is going to commandeer this Russian jet. Now, the question I had here when he's commandeering the jet, when Bond takes over the jet, he knocks out the would-be pilot who never boards the jet. And then he whacks the rear co-pilot with the helmet, it looks like, and knocks him out. And as the co-pilot in the back seat had a pistol drawn, I'm thinking uh, later... Where is that pistol, and why didn't Bond take well, that weapon away? Yeah, if, if you watch it again, Dan, the guy drops the pistol, and it falls outside the plane. Does it fall outside the plane? Yeah, it falls outside the plane, so when he, you know, so that's gone. Okay. Now, the, th the thing I do like about, you know, how in No Time to Die, they borrowed things from different movies. You know, here, when Bond starts up the jet, he starts spinning it on the ground and firing its guns, which is very similar to what happens with the DB-5 in No Time to Die in the pre-title sequence there. Yeah, yeah. All right, I still have another problem with his treatment of this guy in the back seat, though, which I have the same problem in GoldenEye when he uh, swoops down and, and gets to the guy in the toilet and so on. It's like... Why don't you take care of that guy just in case you, you knock him out and he, oh, recovers and wakes up? You know, kill him. Throw him out of the plane. Do something. Shoot him. Uh, no. So we're going to see a little later, of course. Yeah, but part, part of their mission is not to kill everybody. Only kill if needed. Uh, yeah, this guy's in the way. And he had no problem knocking him out so that he could steal the plane. However, as we're going to see, that's going to cost him. <laughs> Well, he might have thought that he knocked this guy out like he was knocked out in Goldeneye. So maybe he's maybe he's working on some life lessons here. And it's like, okay, <laughs> I can I can disable him. He'll he'll be out for the next couple of minutes. I'll drop him off with a note and say, sorry, I borrowed your plane. But no. 
And uh, there's a plane chase, of course. Another plane takes off, chasing Bond, and it's got the. How did that other plane take off? Right, you saw that. You saw the. We we didn't see that. Actually, did we see the plane take off? I don't know how he possibly could have because he he's chasing Bond, and if he's chasing Bond, and as soon as Bond takes off, the missile hits. How'd that other plane go? He just barely gets out of there, and that's not a long runway. No. No, So how did did that other pilot go? There might have been another runway. I mean, it's a terrorist arms bazaar. They've got people coming in from all places. Private jets (laughs) need to be accommodated. Helicopters need to be accommodated. They probably have a Michelin star chef there. (laughs) (laughs) Terrorists are very, like, late 90s fictional terrorists were very used to a flushed lifestyle probably because they saw it in a James Bond movie. Yeah. <laughs> All right, so Bond's flying, and, and, ch- and the plane is chasing him and so on, and here comes the incoming missile, of course, that the ship launched, and the missile explodes pretty much on time. And you can see that the screen at MOD, Ministry of Defense, goes out. Now, this, you were talking about M earlier, Mike, and Judy Dench is M. You look at M's face here when the screen goes fuzzy, when the bomb explodes, realizing that her bond is probably dead. It's just so perfect. Her face, perfect. She looks dismayed, sad. You can see her take a breath, a long breath, exhale out as she thinks Bond is gone. I mean, that moment, ah, and she blinks her eyes rapidly and looks down to the left just knowing oh my god what has just happened bond is dead just picture perfect acting here with her face much better than words better than a thousand words and it's easy to miss in all the chaos that's going on here but if you look at this scene with her man that's perfect judy dench as m wow so so m once again thinks that bond is killed in another pre-title yeah. What are they going to do with the rest of the 110 minutes of the movie? <laughs> I don't blame her, though, because it, it looks pretty bad. <laughs> yeah. Now, the, the cool thing is, though, in the midst of this explosion, we see this plane and Bond comes out of the flames. Yeah. And we get the Bond music playing. I mean, it's a great moment. Yeah. That was a perfect moment for the Bond music swooping up. And, and now we see Bond. He survived. Just because, again, using that Bond theme, you look at you know David Arnold's first pre-credit sequence, and he's playing it fa- early, playing it often, but in good ways. Versus, you know, obviously in the Casino Royale br- reboot, the brief was to basically save that till the end of the movie mm-hmm. because that's when Bond really became Bond. And both strategies work brilliantly for him, the way that he carries them off. But yeah, it's just. I even remember watching Dr. No for the first time and it's like how much that James Bond theme is played in there. It was almost like, okay, every five minutes we're going to, we're going to throw into that. And you know, obviously young me's not taking into account at, at that time. Oh, it's the first movie. It's yeah. the, the through line for the film, you know, give them a break. Mm-hmm. But you can, if, if you're not careful, that theme can wear out. It's welcome. Even though it's iconic. Well, that's like, you know, if you ever saw the movie, that thing you do, Yes, right. I love that movie. Yeah, it's a it's a great movie, but that song is done. I don't even know how many times they play versions of that song in that movie, and somehow they pulled it off. Yeah, it never gets old. Yeah, yeah. And it's 
yeah, yeah. it's the same thing here with the, with the bond stuff but yeah it's it's when they do that right it really is cool yeah so now you see the bond the, the plane emerging and so on and, and you see the back seat pilot <laughs> he wakes up and now he's garroting bond and bond is flying the plane perfectly with his knees directly below the pursuit so that's, plane. They, that's part of his training i'm sure yeah i mean they that's do where he does his best time. thinking <laughs> <laughs> it's like target practice i mean you know the mi6 guys do that so he doesn't know what, so the guy above him doesn't know where bond is so again bond is killing all kinds of people here and he doesn't incapacitate the rear pilot uh after knocking him out this is what kills me all the time it's like kill the guy get rid of this guy because he could jeopardize your mission which hey that's your goal right your focus on the mission anyway this is this is going on i couldn't tell if the guy behind him had the garret or wire wrapped around his hands or whatever because that's important when bond decides to press the ejector button <laughs> yeah it looked like a wire to me okay because bond decides okay he's going to eject the guy in the back seat the wire is around his neck <laughs> it could have taken his head off right i mean it, it, absolutely it, <laughs> boom yeah, pull it the guy flies up because well, yeah, the guy had it go. wrapped around his hands. It wasn't like it was going to just slip out of his hands. Yeah. When he Boom. You would have seen him flying up and Bond's head. <laughs> but So you, you don't know. But like Alex Trevelyan 006 said in our decoding of GoldenEye, half of everything is luck, James. And the other half, Bond asks, fate. <laughs> All right, here's another example of how luck saves James Bond. And really... As we said this again in GoldenEye, this is how James Bond has survived so many missions, really. It's luck. It's luck, not skill, in many times that his life is saved. And it, uh, again, clever of Bond that the ejection seat is going to rise up and hit the bottom of the chase plane above him and blow that plane up too of course that's just clever well and <laughs> and we know that bond loves his ejector seats right so in, in goldfinger yeah. he gets rid of that one henchman with one he i love he threatens them with one in skyfall yeah and inspector he uses not the passenger seat ejector seat but for his own to get out of the car before it crashes in the in the river yeah but this is actually my favorite ejector seat bit in all of the bond movies okay I mean, the way he's flying the plane with his knees, he <laughs> scores a perfect delivery of the henchman, uh, although into the other plane, although I'm not sure why that other plane blew up when <laughs> the guy hits into Very it. But, or how that guy even has enough force to crash through that plane. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I know but, ejector seats are powerful, but I don't think that would be enough to just crash through the plane, dislodge yeah. the other seat, and then cause an explosion. Yeah. yeah. Willing suspension of disbelief. It's Once again. Mo it's, mo it's movie magic, right? I mean, it's, it's cool. Now, the yeah. other thing about the scene that I really like, though, is it reminds me a lot of in the first Top Gun, where there's that scene where uh, uh, Maverick's flying upside down uh, on top o over uh, one of the Russian MiGs so he could get that picture. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. It's, it's, I, I, I like it when they've got these planes flying up on you know, on top of each other. I think that's pretty cool. All right. As a side note, the plane that Bond is flying here is an L-39, which at the time was a Czechoslovakian plane nicknamed the Albatross. But it was also a plane that was based in both East Germany and the Soviet Union at the time. So pretty authentic, pretty authentic. That was a good little piece of writing there and a good prop. So nice. 
kudos again to the writers and the prop folks all right so now one of the things that i really like happens here and it's good continuity for a bond movie when they launch the missile from the ship it's at about 317 in the pre-title sequence and they say the impact will be in four minutes and eight seconds yeah so which would bring it to about seven minutes and 25 seconds and when they come back and say one minute to impact that's at 627 so they're within two seconds of the original call for impact and when it does explode it looks like maybe 16 seconds of padding was added for more action but for a bond movie that's this is pretty consistent and pretty you know the continuity's right there for once so it wasn't ex- they didn't hit it exact but for a bond movie no, they got pretty, pretty close, close. Yeah, pretty for any close. movie like 16 a, a deficit of 16 seconds that's yeah. You could probably chalk that up to they edited around a moment or they had yeah, to a couple of seconds, really, really. It was pretty good. I would buy that missile, but I would not buy those planes if they're that fragile. Yeah. Just, you know. <laughs> Hello, everyone. Welcome to our terrorist arms bazaar buying guide. Yeah. <laughs> uh, oh, that's good. Uh, after the plane chase and he ejects the backseat driver, as we just talked about, it's cool. We see Bond get on the the communications device and say white knight the white rook i've evacuated the area ask the admiral where he'd like his bombs delivered oh, oh, oh. the admiral's face looks stern he's you don't know if he's happy that bond made it or pissed off that he was wrong <laughs> but i like that they show this face and he again looks looks angry but again m mike steals the scene here m smiles proudly just look at M's face here in this scene. For about five seconds, she reacts to the message coming through, realizes Bond has survived and has done his job, all in her face without a word. Brilliant. Judy Dench is that good. I mean, just terrific. Yeah, now, for me, one of the things about this that when I look at this pre-title versus, like, the whole plot of Thunderball, uh-huh. right? I mean, this is really almost the whole plot of Thunderball, it's right. It's, we've got to get some, extricate some nuclear warheads in both of these things. Here they can do it in seven minutes. It took them a whole movie in Thunderball. <laughs> well, this wasn't a, this wasn't an extortion plot involved in there. It was just, oh, yeah. you, know, we, you know what? We still have these things sitting here. I don't know if they're still good. Sell them at the Arms Bazaar. Someone will take them. Yeah, there you go. That's true. So We need to make room for the nanobots. Yeah. yeah. Exactly. All right. So we see from the close-up of the exhaust jet and the flames that we morph into glass cracking, and this title sequence now goes in. And so that's the end of the pre-title sequence, which I thought was a pretty darn good one. What's your vote on this? Absolutely striking. And again, this a, a, a part of my bias might be because Tomorrow Never Dies was the first full Bond movie that I watched as a Bond fan. Uh-huh. Like I, my my initial exposure to the franchise was between brief glimpses of The Living Daylights on a flight back home from Germany as a kid, uh-huh. and then my dad and his best friend snuck into Goldeneye with uh-huh. my best friend and I, and we saw like <laughs> Pierce Brosnan looking at Joe Don Baker's ass tattoo, and it's like. Uh, <laughs> Maybe we'll go play the PlayStation outside. But then GoldenEye 64 piques my interest. Then this hits home video and I just become enamored with it. So, yeah, uh, long story short, my, I, I think this is one of the better 
opening credit sequence. I like it because it's got the action, it's got the tension, it does tie into the rest of the movie. I don't know how Gupta got out of there with all the explosions, but um, <laughs> well, they were moving pretty quickly. Yeah, like when he yells, true. "I got the encoder," they probably yeah. like jetted out of there. Yeah. No problem. He's not a dummy. He's like he's not yeah. going to linger. Yeah, yeah. yeah. no so Chilean mines he, for him. He's a magician. It was a disappearing act, right? <laughs> but I actually like they had they had some of the humor in it. They had the nurturing M yeah, stuff. Yeah. I mean, I just I, I think it's a really good pre-title sequence. All right. Oh, yeah. I mean, you've got this beautiful opening title sequence. Uh, it is a Cheryl Crow song. Yeah. Which she co-wrote with one of her producers, uh, Mitchell Froome. And I do love this song. It's a good song. The title credit, the, t- the sequence with all this technology and, and diamonds. I don't know why they threw the diamonds in, I guess, just because yeah. diamonds, 007. But <laughs> this it, it, gorgeous, mournful tune but there was another song that's referenced throughout the melody in White Knight and through the rest of the film that was supposed to be, from what I've heard, it was supposedly the original theme of the film, and it's Katie Lang's Surrender, which she wrote with David Arnold and was, you know, they have it in the, the end credits. Mm-hmm. But, like, those screaming horns before, the melody where it's like, bah, 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 that's the opening to that song. Yeah, yeah. Okay. And then Backseat Driver, which is Bond's big, motor, <laughs> uh, big uh, BMW chase, David Arnold and collaborators, the propeller heads work together and make it brilliant again. And I think that's one of the, I think it's one of the largest missed opportunities for, for a theme. That's just, I put it up there with Thunderball. It is like uh, Brosnan, the Brosnan era's Thunderball, where it's just this big swaggering ballad of evil. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. Now in, on this song, uh, there was a, I, I found an article on something called ultimate action and they talk about how you might want to listen to this song thinking of it being sung by Paris Carver, right? Because it mentions that the opening line is, Darling, I'm killed. And if you listen from there, thinking about okay. this is Paris Carver telling her plot, it's just an interesting way to look at that song. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I, I thought that was, and I went back and I did that. And, and it was like, wow, that, that that could make a lot of sense. So just, just some other another twist on how you might look at that. Yeah. Well, to that point, you look at Surrender. That's Elliot's song. Yeah. So you've got a perfect bookending of songs here. Yeah, that's from cool. the Carvers. You know, they could have. Yeah. You know, if things had panned out differently, they could have went on tour and just been like a singing duo. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's good stuff. All right. So the title sequence is cool. There's a lot of interesting images in the title sequence, some of which are suggestive. <laughs> Unlike yeah, no, not in a Bond oh, title. Unlike sequence. any Bond film ever before, naked uh, women jumping off of diamonds. <laughs> what? <laughs> yeah. I'm shocked that there's gambling in this establishment. Yeah, there are some cool elements in there they hadn't used before, like the X-ray stuff and and uh, and so on. But there were there were some uh, certainly phallic type symbols in there. Anyways, pretty good, pretty good title sequence. The music is great. And well, the, the other thing I want to say about that, though, is they had like flashes of new stuff, some real new stuff that were big news things like Tiananmen Square and stuff like that. And yeah, so, yeah. you know, the title sequence almost says is the is the news controlling the narrative, which is really what this movie is all about. So I was kind of that was kind of uh, yeah, cool yeah. How did that. Yeah, well, that's a good point. All right. Tomorrow Never Dies pre-title sequence decoded. That's a wrap. 
All right, this has been Dan. And Tom from SpyMovieNavigator.com. And Mike Reyes from Cinema Blend. Yeah, thanks, Mike. And our show, Cracking the Code of Spy Movies. Subscribe to our show right now. And to our Cracking the Code of Spy Movies channel on YouTube as well. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, too. Thanks for listening. We appreciate it.